Welcome to Two Cents FC. I'm your host, Amobi Okugo, back again with my guy, L. Each week, we'll be talking with individuals from around the soccer world, learning about their stories and getting their unfiltered thoughts and opinions. This week, we're joined by your favorite U.S. men's national team player, media personality, SF Glenn's head coach, and inspiration for a lot of MLS soccer guys, Jimmy Conrad. Oh, we gonna... <laughs> what an introduction. Yes. I love it. Thank you. No. I appreciate that. It, it, it doesn't do it justice. And you, you know, you're one of the goats when it comes to you know soccer players turn media personalities turn just all around great guys. <laughs> um, so I'm excited. I know El's excited. We're going to be getting to know all about Jimmy, talking about his career, and then learning about his uh, endless off pitch endeavors. <laughs> yeah. Jimmy, how are you feeling today? Yeah, I'm great. I'm excited to be joining you guys and. Uh... Let's get after it. I, I'm, I'm ready to dive in and, and learn about you guys as well, because I feel like you probably have some insights along the way that I could learn from as well. No, nah, most yeah, definitely. Sure. Well, we, we always start off with two truths and a cap, so I'm going to let L take that away. <laughs> All right, two truths and a cap. So if you haven't been following the show, this is a quick icebreaker game that we'd like to play where we'll ask our guest, Jimmy, three facts about himself. Two will be true. One will be a lie. You know, Moby and I have to guess what the lie is. Um, I believe the score is what? Two one? Did I get one right last oh, time? No, I think it's three zero. No, I think we're about two one. <laughs> about two one right now. So, um, we'll whenever you're ready, one. Jimmy. Whenever you're ready, Jimmy. Kick All it right. Off. Two truths and a lie. Okay. 2014 World Cup. I am at a hotel, the Budweiser Hotel in Rio de Janeiro, Copacabana Beach. And I'm doing an event for Budweiser. Rihanna's there. And Rihanna asks to take a picture with me. That's number one. Number two, while playing in MLS for Kansas City, there was an article in 442 Magazine where Juan Pablo Angel, who was playing for the New York Red Bulls, said I was the best defender in the whole entire league and that I could play in Europe no problem. Number three, at El Clasico, the, the last El Clasico before the pandemic hit, I was working on the sideline for BN Sports and I see Roberto Carlos walking by and Roberto Carlos acts like he recognizes me and gives me a bro hug. <laughs> I was shocked. <laughs> Yo. Two truths and a lie. Which one is true or which two are true? Which one's a lie? I don't know. You guys decide. One of that's, them's a lie, though. That's, that's, yo, the amount that's of probably the best one so these far. Stories. Unbelievable. Yeah, for sure. Uh, All right. For some I'm reason, trying, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to sell it. Yeah. I'm trying to sell my lie. You know, you just got to figure out which one it for is. For some reason, why, so, why do I feel like you didn't retire? You retired after 2014, but. Um, I did so. not. I retired in 2011. Oh, okay. So. Mm -hmm. Uh, Juan Pablo and Hale, you got you play for, yeah, that would make sense. But you guys only played him like twice a year. Um, you did work. I remember. I'm going. Uh, Rihanna lie, or cap. My bad. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna say Rihanna too. Nope, that Damn. is the truth. That is an absolute <laughs> truth. I I actually was. Uh, it was Juan Pablo and Hale. He, he didn't say I was the best defender in the league. He just said that uh, that amongst, like, eight names, I was in there as one of the players that that uh, was pretty okay. good. <laughs> that Some was nuance it. there. Some nuance. Oh, yeah, right. so, so the Roberto Carlos one was true. I, I yeah. could not believe it. He turned the corner, and he 
we we made eye contact and he you know that recognition when yeah. somebody recognizes you i'm like this isn't it should be the other way around it shouldn't be yeah. so that was crazy uh and a big thrill for me because roberto carlos is the goat and and in the rihanna one so i worked with budweiser during the world cup in 2014 i was with kick tv at the time and we were doing our own thing and what ended up happening at the bud hotel whatever host they had a brazilian host she couldn't I don't know if she wasn't like ticking the right boxes or for her English wasn't good enough because they were bringing in big celebrities. Uh-huh. So we, we were in, um, God, where were we? We were up by the Amazon, like super far from Rio. And, and the people from Bud called and said, hey, Jimmy, do you want to come down and, and interview Will Ferrell for us? And I was like, uh, yeah. So I, I, we had to <laughs> scramble to get, I had to get down to Rio. I get there and I get to interview Will Ferrell. And what was cool about it was they're like, hey, we'll just let you get to know him a little bit. It was just me and Will Ferrell talking, sh- talking trash or talking to each other for 15 minutes. <laughs> Nobody, he had no entourage, nothing. So I was like, dude, that was awesome. You know, and I know he's a big soccer guy. Now he's an owner of LAFC and all that stuff. And, and I went, went to UCLA, he went to USC. So I kind of leaned into that because I didn't know what to say to Will Ferrell. Like you can talk to that guy yeah. for hours, you know, about a whole bunch of different stuff. So I did the interview. They loved the interview that I did. And it was just, it was perfect. Not, not too, not too silly, but also not too serious. So they said, Hey, you want to come back? Rihanna's going to be next. I said, hell yeah, dude, I'll definitely stick around for Rihanna. So <laughs> we go in and, and it's a couple days later and uh, I had my 1970s tux with me. So I'm all decked out to take, uh, to do this thing. She, she doesn't, I go with the butt hotel four hours, five hours. She doesn't show up. And I was like, oh, I was crestfallen, man. I wanted to meet Rihanna. Yeah. And, and they said, Hey, listen, um, she can't come down tonight. Whatever happens. Her entourage is like, you know, whatever they're making up excuses as to why she can't be there (laughs) yeah cool people stuff yeah yeah big time celebrity stuff and so they said well she'll definitely come back down tomorrow and budweiser's like hey don't worry about it like we don't want to make you wait around for four i'm like dude it's rihanna what am i ever going to cross paths with rihanna so i go back the next day get my tux back on get all smelling good you know and it's just me and uh mike gartland if you know him he's an agent because he's my agent at the time and he's like dude i want to meet Rihanna and uh so like all right so I got him in and then the the Budweiser guy and then all of a sudden the room's empty all of a sudden Rihanna comes in and right when she comes in the guy goes hey I don't know don't don't ask her for a photo or anything because you know I don't yeah I'm like oh hey man all right whatever whatever so I don't ask the photographer comes out of nowhere she comes into the room with her little her like couple people and she, honestly, you know, you see some celebrities, you see them on TV, and then you see them in person, like, ah, they're not that good looking, you know? She is absolutely <laughs> stunning, dude. R- Rihanna is stunning. She is stunning. Like, she's like the sun. You can't even look at her. She's so hot. You know, you're like, oh, my God. So, so I, in- I get introduced to her, and I'm just, st- I'm like, just lost, you know, looking at her. And, uh, and she's really sweet. And, and I'm like, how, they were kind of painting her like she just had, like, she's too busy to do any of these. She's so nice. And all of a sudden, like the heads, the CEO, Budweiser comes in with his family. All these like big wigs of Budweiser come in. They all take photos with Rihanna. And then she's just standing there. Everybody gets out of the room. She goes, hey, Jim. She calls me Jim. Hey, Jim, you want to take a photo? And I was like, you know it. They would have got my tux all set. And, and uh, so she asked me to take a photo, which is amazing. And then when I go up to take a photo, you know, I kind of, I didn't know how, how do you, how do you stand next to Rihanna? You know, I didn't know yeah. how to like. Do I put my arm around her, like my around her waist? Like, well, I don't know what to do. I don't know what's what's appropriate here. So I go to kind of get next to her, and she turns around and backs her backs her thing like her butt up into my my. I'm like, whoa, Rihanna is next level. Dude. <laughs> so when I have to, show, I'll, I'll email you guys the photo. Yeah, for sure. And it looks like that. we're taking a prom photo. It looks like oh. we have a prom photo. 
it's the most amazing, amazing thing. And she was so sweet. And afterwards, there was a concert on, not from her, but like a DJ was playing on top of the roof. And I went up there and she called, hey, Jen, going to hang out with us. You know, I'm like, anytime. But uh, <laughs> it was great. It was great. So that's that's my that's Rihanna dope. story. She's dope. really sweet. No, yeah. I love that. Uh, Jimmy, dope. you're known for some of the best stories in soccer. <laughs> and soccer has given you so much. Um, but when did you fall in love with soccer? That's a good question. So my grandfather was Danish and he would just kick the ball around with me. And um, when I was a kid and that kind of you know, planted the seed, we all have a place where the seed gets planted in our lives as to, hey, this is this is pretty cool. I like this game a little bit more than I like all the other ones. And I think where the tipping point was for me, at least as a younger player, was I, I you know, when you play with those kids and they're just like heads and shoulders above everybody else because they kind of understand, especially when you're younger. It's not bunch ball. Mm. Like they get the ball, they're thinking about it. They dribble around all the kids picking flowers and all that stuff, and they can just shoot from distance. And it's like 18 goals a game. I was that kid at like seven, and it made my grandfather. I could see him. You know, when you're watching your parents and their body yeah. language, and you're kind of seeing. He made him so happy and proud, man. You know, chest. And it's kind of like you got to see how the game and and what it meant to when you played and played well and and. Not only were you provide an enjoyment for yourself, but it meant so much to the people that, that cared for you. And, you, and then you, I think you chase that. And, and I think that there's probably an undercurrent. Now, I can't speak for everybody, but at least for my career, there was an undercurrent of can I make my parents and my grandparents proud of me the whole time, you know? And it just kind of kept you going even when things weren't going your way. Can you keep fighting and pushing and, and give them a, a reason to be proud of you? And I'd like to think that I, I did that. But, but, but yeah, that's where it kind of started was that, that seed. And, and when I played baseball – and some of the other sports just didn't have that same type of feeling for me where that I feel like baseball, football, even basketball, even though I like basketball a lot, it's like my second favorite sport because you can still be creative within the parameters of the game. I feel like soccer gave you even more freedom to, to express yourself in a way that like baseball, they tell you what to do all the time. There's not a lot of creativity <laughs> football, like the plays called for you. So you, you know, outside of like, if it's a broken play, it's the only time you can really be creative. You know, it's, it's soccer is so, even though we like to think there's a lot of passing patterns and all that stuff, there's still a lot of creativity and you get to think for yourself, which I appreciate it. Yeah. And then growing up in SoCal, like talk about some of your like soccer influences outside of your family. Whew. Good question. So I think, um, I think you can get little bits and pieces along the way. I was thankful to have good coaches and, mm -hmm. and not just coaches. I had some great volunteer dads. I want to give a shout out to the volunteer dads who left work early to make sure that there was a place for us to play and did their very best, but there was a ceiling to what they could teach, right? They couldn't mm -hmm. teach proper technique. And we were, I was lucky and the team I was on was lucky because the dad that was taking over, he had a son that was playing at Cal State Northridge. So that son would come back and help us and would, would show us what it looks like, right? What is a, just a touch, like a proper first touch from your left to your right or your right to your left. And why, not only that, but the why, why is that important? When would you do that in a game? And so when you started to have this frame of reference as to why you would do certain things in certain situations, it really unlocks like this, this next level of the game. And, and you start to make decisions that are more than just kicking it to kick it. You're starting to try to make soccer decisions. You know, when we're coaching, like, can you make a good soccer decision on the ball? I know you can kick it. I know your parents yell and kick it from the sideline, but I want you to trap it and actually try to make a decision. And that was instilled in me pretty, pretty early on. So I had uh, that coach. And then, you know, you see, see guys that you're playing with that give you that little bit of inspiration. Like, man, I wish I could do that. So you start to mimic that a little bit. And then um, I had a high school coach who was on the Bermuda national team. And that dude would come out with us. 
dude, he'd be rainbowing us and stuff and laughing at us when we when we when he'd run past us with a rainbow over us and so fast and so strong. And not only did he have this, he just enjoyed the he loved the game in, mm-hmm. in a way that I wasn't maybe exposed to it in that same way. It felt a little bit more practical from this one coach who was very more coach-minded, more technical, tactical-based. And then I get around a coach who has all that, but like his base is all enthusiasm and passion and love for the game. So I really was, was lucky to have and fortunate to have some coaches that knew what they were doing, knew how to explain and communicate, but then also had this, this, under, this greater love and how it brought people together. So you start to understand a couple different things. And then I used to go to UCLA soccer games when I was a kid. And that was really important to me. So Ziggy Schmidt was a coach, you know, the sideline, big belly walking around. Rest in peace to Zig, who I ended up playing for, which is a pretty cool thing. But I got to see Joe Max Moore, Brad Friedel, Kobe Jones, you know, guys that ended up being massive players for our national team. And getting to see them in college, the decisions they made, I think it's so important for a young player to go watch a game live. Mm-hmm. Because you get to see a lot of the off-the-ball movement that you can't see on TV. And so it ended up becoming a dream of mine to play for UCLA. And when I didn't get accepted there, didn't, they didn't really want me as a player. Uh, that really crushed me, but it gave me motivation to try to find my way. So I transferred in after, after two years at San Diego State. And I walked on. And uh, we ended up winning the national championship my senior year. So that was a big thrill for me to, to have been a part of the, the history of the program in some capacity. Yeah, so can you talk about growing up in SoCal from the soccer scene? Like, because we've had people on the po- uh, on the show before, and a lot of people from the DMV say, you know, best hotbed for talent. Uh, so this is your moment to state your claim. You know, <laughs> oh, I got it. Listen, I, I got it. I got it. I got okay. Listen, so we would go to national team camp, okay? Uh-huh. And when I was there, we would play, Bruce Arena's the coach, we would play Southern California against the rest of the country. <laughs> and we would run – Shop, dude. For the longest time, UCLA had more representation on the U.S. men's national team than any other university. And so when you started to put the collection of players that came out of Southern California, it, it was unmatched uh, against everywhere else. And, and it would be competitive. I'm not saying – but we were – but there was a lot of pride in, in how much. And I think yeah. what ends up happening is that we got to play year-round, and you could play outside year-round, and you could get different influences. You'd have a little bit of that English influence, you know, and then you'd have – the Latin influence. And, and as I got a little bit older, I got to play in men's league games. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know if I'm allowed to say this now, but they would slip me like 20 bucks to pay for my gas, get me a little bit of lunch, no. you know, when I'm like <laughs> 16 or 17, because they realized this gringo could play, you know? And, and um, that was really a formative for me as well, because you had to toughen up. Like those guys don't yeah. give a shit about your feelings, you know? So exactly. that was really important for me to go out there and, and see a different style, a little bit more of a, survival right because and and because you know that they these guys aren't going to let up on tackles like they're going to come right through you so (laughs) you have to play a little bit quicker you have to learn how to protect yourself you have to get your arms up you have to be prepared for elbows like playing in the men's league actually really prepared me for playing against clint dempsey who is uh clint dempsey ended up breaking my jaw i love clint (laughs) but he is so physical right and he's trying to gain little advantages and he's so competitive that when i think about playing against clint it, it does remind me of and that when you think about his career he kind of grew up playing in those same environments so he was trying to survive and protect himself so i really recognized you know where his upbringing was and and where he was developing his game and uh and i loved it i i I love clint's game and i want more clint dempsey's international team as we continue to move forward but uh but yeah there was a there was so many people playing in so many different ways that you could be in and around the game and and what's funny is 
not a lot of people at my school played. So we would be playing hoop. We played a lot of hoops. We would play, you know, touch football that would kind of turn into tackle football. <laughs> but we'd be playing in the streets. But I was always outside and moving around. And I think that's really important because with the, uh, I don't know, the evolution of video games and, of course, the phone, those dopamine hits, you know, you get that kind of satisfaction by being on your phone and, and connecting in that way. And obviously the pandemic has heightened all that and people are starting to get more comfortable. So even for my own two kids, like getting them outside to just run around and play, like what the hell are you talking about, man? They just don't yeah. have any, it, that's just not how they're growing up. And so I think it's a bit of a, bit of a shame in some capacity, but I will say that the kids that are drawn to sports, I see those kids outside, like they are outside playing. And it's really important because I think that helps you develop that, that improvisation that you need like in a broken play, if something doesn't work, you're, like, you're always thinking about how can I gain an advantage? Yeah. What can I do in this particular situation? And uh, that's why we need more kids playing kind of outside the coaching sphere, like because they're always told what to do all the time. Sometimes they need room just to think for themselves. No, I love that. You touched on a number of different things. Uh, men's league, first and foremost, I think every young player from ages 15 to 18, before you go out to college, have to play on a men's league team. Mm -hmm. You touched on playing multiple, multiple sports. I think that's highly recommended just mm -hmm. To get a different, you know, different footwork from basketball to soccer, it all translates. And then just getting outside, you know, you don't have to have everything so structured. You don't need a trainer, you know, you don't have like a ball on the wall and some friends and play some pickup or just being outside in general that make can make all the difference. For you, you know, you talked about your journey from San Diego State to UCLA, mm -hmm. uh, you know, having to walk on. Do you have any like piece of advice, you know? Obviously, SoCal, there's a lot of talent. It's easy to get, like, overlooked. But what's some advice would you have for, like, a young player to, like, it's easy to give up. You know, you're at San Diego State. Yeah. I'm not sure if it was a party school then, as it is now. <laughs> listen, but listen. To keep, it, to keep going. <laughs> I, I uh, when, before I went to, to San Diego State, the 7-Eleven near campus was the highest-selling alcohol 7-Eleven <laughs> in the nation. And I was laughing at that, telling my mom. My mom's like, that's not, you shouldn't, that's nothing to be proud of, honey, you know? Um, I'm like, but it's still something, you know, like at my yeah. school doing, doing selling alcohol. So yes, definitely a party school, but I didn't go there to, to party. That wasn't really my thing. The first time I had ever actually touched alcohol is when the seniors forced me to do it during initiation. And I remember like talking to a garage, like a garage door by myself. Like, what am I even doing? You know, that was my first really, uh, yeah, it, it sounds funny now. And actually UCLA, they, we had to go run around campus on, with, jo with jock straps and uh with our numbers painted on our butts and um <laughs> yeah crazy things and there was an after party if you made it past the pre-party or like the yep. initiation and jorge <laughs> campos was there and i had my arm around him drunk going, oh my god it's jorge campos he must have been like this guy's insane so so yeah i mean there's some funny initiation stuff but um i think the biggest piece of advice i can give was that I learned that the, if you can play, even just a smidge, and just can play and make good decisions, if you're the fittest guy on the team, you, they, the coach rarely cuts the fittest guy on the team. Now, if you mm -hmm. can't play, then, then you're probably, it doesn't matter how fit you are. But, but if you can play and you're the fittest guy on the team, I think that shows the coach that you care, that you're coachable, and that this matters to you. And you're willing to put in the work and sacrifice to make that happen. Right. And so I took that to heart. So when I went to San Diego State, we had to do the, instead of the Cooper's test of two, two miles under 12 minutes, we had to do three miles under 19 minutes. With I was so fit. You guys had to do it with the break or like two no. miles under 12, six minute rest, and then 
or no, 19 no. minutes straight? Three, ma- three miles straight under 19 minutes. Oh, my goodness. And so I, before, knowing that, you know, because they tell you ahead of time yeah. that just to be prepared, I went to Mount Sac, which is in Southern California, one of the top JCs in California. And uh, they had one of the top cross-country courses, which is what, 3.2 miles? Yeah. Ups, you know, a whole bunch of inclines and all kinds of crazy stuff. And I ran that. I, I ran it crazy. I'm like, I'm not – if they're going to hold me back on something or if they're going to say I'm not good at something, it's not going to be due to something I can control. Yeah. So I went and I ran that. And, dude, I ran a 1720 three-mile. I was on – I beat everybody by half a lap. I beat the seniors. I beat the yeah. juniors. I beat – I crushed everybody. And, and I did it. And this is one of the things that was kind of what I do just for myself. When I was done, I acted like I wasn't tired yeah. because I just wa- – I wanted to – I wanted to stomp on their throats, yeah. you know, like not only did I just crush you, but I'm also not tired. How about that? So, so these like little things that I would put out there, don't tell anybody, I mean, just for the podcast audience, I tell them, no. but, but that was something I knew I had control over. But when I was 15, we had a chance to have a conversation at a youth tournament with Marcelo Balboa's dad, Louis Balboa. I'll never forget this. And at that point, Marcelo Balboa had played in two world cups for us. He grew up in Southern California as well. And so my coach, you know, pulls him in. Hey, come talk to my guys. You can see he's like, all right, here we go. And anybody have any questions? My hand goes up. Everybody's hands go up. And I said, hey, you know, what did it take for Marcelo to play in two World Cups for us? You know, I'm like, oh, I think I'm going to get like a really detailed answer. He goes, oh, he just went and worked on his game every day at the park for two hours. And, and I, that was it. And he moved on to the next question. I mean, if you ask me that, I'll give you like a 30-minute answer. But he, gives, he says that. And moves on to the next question, and it was this massive, massive light bulb for me because similar to what I was just talking about with the fitness, it was up to me to decide how good I was going to be at anything. And that is when you don't – when you stop relying on other people, when you stop thinking that people owe you something and you have to take ownership of yourself and the decisions that you make and try to get better at the game, it is so incredibly freeing. But it's also incredibly scary. So I got that information. Dude, I was like – Oh, baby, I got it. Marcelo Balboa, he went to the park every day by himself for two hours. That's what I'm going to do. So I go out there, and there's nobody there. I got a wall to play against, and I don't know what to – guys, I don't know what to do. Like, I don't even know what to work on because you're like, oh, wow, what is he doing for two hours? I have no idea what he's doing for two hours. So you get out there, and and there's nobody there. And I was like, okay, well, I know I'm not that great with my left foot. I kind of just stand on it. Uh, let me just work on my left foot. So I'm working on my left foot, and it's so bad. I'm, in, I'm embarrassed. And, and imagine how embarrassed you have to be when there's nobody watching you. You're by yourself, and you're still embarrassed. Like, that's it, – it was – I had to then accept the fact that I wasn't as good as I thought I was and that I was pretending to be better than I, than I thought. And so after 10 minutes – after 10 minutes – I was so discouraged about how bad my left foot was. I grabbed my ball and I went home. And because it was easier and safer for me to go play video games with my friends than to actually go out there and challenge myself. Now, to my credit, I went back out the next day. I still didn't know what the hell I was working on, but I had an idea of what it was that I needed to work on because I went out there and and just tested myself. So that 10 minutes, I went out again and I sucked again. And it was. I went home again after 10 minutes. I'm going to raise my hand and I'm going to say (laughs) that I I still, it it was a struggle, but again, to my credit, I kept, I kept pushing my, like, I'm just going to go out there. And what I saw was that when I went out to practice with my own team, 
I started to get a little bit more comfortable when the ball came my way. So, so I wasn't as afraid of the ball as maybe as I was before. I wasn't, there's like, you guys know it. There's that one like half second before a ball comes to you. What am I going to do with this ball? What am I going to decide? And, and how comfortable am I am with, with that first touch? And all of a sudden, because of this, just a little bit of extra work, I realized I was relaxing a little bit more because I had already been taking those touches at the school and the park by myself. So when that ball came to me, I wasn't as like anxious. Mm -hmm. So I started to relax. And when I started to relax, I started to make better decisions on the ball. And I would slow it down just that half second so I could do other things. And my coach was like, hey, I like that. Keep it going. And guys were like, what are you? You know, I could see that they didn't know how, why or why I was getting better. And once it's a drug, once you understand that that little stuff is going to help you, I went back and I started to be a lot more focused. Ah, I got it. This is what I need to work on. And then when I went and talked to my coach, I'd say, hey, what do you think I should work on? And and usually if you're not feeling secure, if you're not confident, you'll get that information and be like, my coach hates me. He thinks I suck at this. I suck at that. And then I started to actually take it and be like, oh my God, that's incredible feedback. Thank you for that. You know, like I started to... Mm take the feedback in a positive way. Like, Oh my, yes, I do need to work on that. And then I'd go home and think, okay, this is how I'm going to put the wall. I put a piece of tape, you know, on the wall and try to hit the same spot every time. Yeah. All right, cool. 10 with my right foot with one bounce, 10 with my left foot with one bounce. Can I do it with two touches? Like I started to your point of Moby, I started to get creative. And then I started thinking, all right, cool. How do I, I got to get better at kind of shifting from right to left and ref left to right. Or maybe if I like out, catch it with the outside of my right against the wall and then play oh. with the inside of my right. And you start to get, these little things. And then it starts to, you're not out there 10 minutes anymore. You're out there for 30. You don't even realize you're out there for 30 minutes anymore. Then it turns into 45. Then it turns into my, my mom's whistling. They like have me come home for dinner. Like it was crazy. And all of a sudden I got so much better than my other player. I'd still make mistakes. It doesn't make you perfect. Perfect. Perfection doesn't, doesn't exist, but, but I, I minimize my mistakes. My lows would be low and my highs. I could, I could extend like my plane, my, my consistency at a high level. I could extend that a lot longer and I wouldn't make as many mistakes. So, so that's what I would tell everybody is it's all there for you. You just have to be willing to put the work in and there are no shortcuts. That's a, that's another one for you. You have to, there's, there's no, you can't skip any steps, man. Everybody wants to get to the end without actually putting the work in. No, I, I love that because I started having flashbacks of like my journey of like training against the wall and like, you know, having to do like those extra, all those extra minutes add up. Um, and for how much work you put in and the grind that you faced, you still had like a unique road to get to where you are. Um, talk about like that experience, you know, going undrafted and then eventually getting, you know, picked up and just like the, the will to like, yo, I want this. So I'm going to really do whatever it takes. Like hearing your stories. I know you share your stories a couple of times with us and it's really amazing to see because I know a lot of people that would have qu- would have quit. So talk, talk about that, like that grind of, you know, going undrafted and, you know, taking the the trips. (laughs) Sure. No, I would say that um, one thing that you mentioned that kind of sparked something in me was, was the quitting part and getting back to control and what you can and can't control. I just didn't want anybody else to decide what I was, what I was or wasn't good at. So even my college coach, like, you know, he, 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 okay, there's, there's a point where he's got control over you, right? But, but, and, and whether you play and whether you don't, but he can't control your attitude. He can't control, you know, if he gives you 15 minutes, he can't control 
how you play in those 15 minutes, that's up to you. And, and so I try to, when I coach myself, I try to echo those sentiments that, that just, just focus on what you can control and everything else is kind of outside of it. Obviously, that's probably a bigger theme for life in general. And that's why I think uh, being part of a team is, is important and being around good coaches are important because they kind of help uh, plant seeds for, for a foundation for everything that you have going on, both on and off the field. But, but um, it, it was empowering to think, okay, even the people that my dad, my mom, my, my coaches that, that uh, gave me so much as a young player, it's still not up to them to decide how good I can be. Even the people that love and support me no matter what, it's, I have to go do it. I, I can't rely on other people to do it for me and all that stuff. So again, that kind of ties into that. So when I didn't, when I, when I, I left a, a scholarship at San Diego State to go to my dream school, UCLA, I called Ziggy Schmidt cold. And he's like, I don't even know who you are. So you work, you're working from that standpoint. So I talked to him and he goes, I, I, okay, you're 6'2", you play in the defense. They were trying to recruit Danny Califf at the time. He ended up going to Maryland. And when that fell through and he went to Maryland, Ziggy was a little bit more open to giving me an opportunity. So he goes, listen, I'll get you into school. At this point, sorry, let me go back. I went in. I went in to introduce myself in person. It was a big risk. But I went into the athletic department at UCLA. I waited around for an hour and a half till he showed up. And I introduced myself. And, and uh, I got all clean and shaven, something I'd never done before. Like it was a job interview. And, uh, and it, was a, it was a bold move. But I wanted, to see, I wanted to go eye to eye with him. And I wanted him to see my size and me in person. And I think it helped. So he said, listen, I'll get you into school. I'll give you one week to try out. Usually we give tryout guys two days, but we'll give you a week. And I said, great. And my parents were like, what the hell are you doing, man? Scholarship to go into walk-on at a more expensive school? We can't even afford that. What are you doing? So we had to apply for financial aid and all, and all that stuff. And so it was a big risk. Not only was I putting you know, this, this, my own like, reputation and pride at stake, but, but also the financial situation for my parents and, and how that could impact us short-term and long-term. So I bet on myself and I said, I'll take a week. And, and, and I guess the way that I had, and you have to have these in here, a little bit of protection for your ego, but I thought, okay, if I don't make the team in the first year, I'm just going to work my ass off. That'll be my red shirt year. Cause I didn't take a red shirt year and I'll just get kind of acclimated to school life. I'll get a job to help kind of offset any of the costs. And that's how I'll, I'll manage it. So I kind of had this, this plan B that was ready to go, but I ended up making the team after a week, the first rock on to start since Kobe Jones. And then I was kind of in and out of the lineup and that, that was hard. And for two years, and even when that playoff started my senior year, I wasn't starting. The guy that was in front of me tore his knee five minutes into the first playoff game. And so Ziggy, the coach, had to play me. He had to play me. And, and I knew that he had to play me. We didn't really have any other options on the bench. And that was important because I could relax. I didn't feel like there was always a time where, oh, man, if I don't, if I don't make a good pass here, he's going to give him a reason to take me off. And, and I was always feeling that pressure, and I didn't necessarily manage it well. But then I could just relax because there was nobody else. And we went on to win the national championship. And I thought for sure I was going to get drafted in MLS. MLS was three years old at that point, and I'm on the top college team. And there's only two rounds at that time. But there was only 18-man rosters in MLS, only 10 teams. So there was no extended rosters. There was no, I don't know, GAMs and TAMs and DAs and whatever <laughs> acronym you guys can come up with. Yeah. There was none of that, right? You, ha you had to make the 18. So it's pretty difficult. But I remember thinking, I saw Mike Pecky got drafted from Southern Connecticut State in the first round. I was like, where the f Southern Connecticut, who plays goddamn Southern Connecticut State? I didn't see them in the playoffs. You know, I was so bitter. But the other four seniors on the team got drafted, and I didn't. And as I'd learned later, Ziggy had made promises to his, those parents when they recruited those players that I'll do everything I can to get your players to go to the next level. He didn't make that promise to my parents. I just came to him. I fell into his lap. He didn't go seek me out. 
And so afterwards, you know, I said, hey, Zig, I mean, I thought I'm good enough. You know, we're on the top. He's like, all right. So get me a train. Uh, I guess start training with the Galaxy. And um, I'll never forget it, man. Octavio Zambrano was the coach. And at that point, they had Cienfuegos, Carlos Hermosillo, Hurtado, mm -hmm. Greg Vanny, Robin Frazier, uh, guys that are coaching now, which is super funny. Dan Kalichman, who's an assistant for Vanny at Galaxy. Now, uh, all these guys, I, I totally looked up to these guys. And Danny Pena was there. Like, this was like the most hardcore holding midfielder I'd seen. He would smoke cigarettes at halftime. He was one of those guys, man. I mean, I was like, this is insane. And so there was a couple pivotal moments for me in this. And, and one was I was there and holding my own. And so much so that after two weeks, they wanted to take me to Florida for their official preseason camp. And Matt Reese, the goalkeeper, he's with me at UCLA. He also got, he got drafted to the Galaxy. So we were driving to and from UCLA together at times. And I give you this context because – Everybody felt bad that I didn't get drafted at school and all of our friends and our peer groups and all that. I was the only one. And everybody was pulling for me. So I go to the Galaxy. I'm, I'm playing really well. I'm feeling good about it. They want to bring me in. And they give me a, they tell me I'm going. I get a bag. I'm number 29. You know, I got my polo. You know, they give you that preseason yeah. bag. Got everything you need. And everybody's excited. Matt, everything. We didn't drive that day together. So we drove separate. So Matt leaves about an hour before I do because I was going to stick around uh, and see my parents because I was close to where the Galaxy trained, where I grew up. And uh, before I leave the Rose Bowl where we're training, Octavio Zambrano calls me. And he's like, ah, leave your bag here. We don't know yet if we're going to let you go. At this point, though, Matt Reese had already gone back to UCLA and told everybody that I was going to the Galaxy preseason yeah. camp because he was excited for me, you know, and I get it. So... I have to leave my bag and they say, hey, we'll call you tonight at 7 p.m. to let you know if you're going. I said, okay. You know, now I'm like yeah, shit in my pants, you know, like, oh, my God. Yeah. So now I go, I go say hi to my mom. And I'm like nervous now, you know, so I'll like make everything kind of quick with my parents. And then I go back to UCLA and everybody's slapping me on the back, high fives, fist bumps. Yeah. But in my mind, I'm like, oh, my God, I don't know if I'm going. So 7 o'clock rolls around. No call. I don't hear from an hour, 8 o'clock. I'm like, oh, man, I'm going to call. So I call. And Octavio's like, oh, yeah, we can't take you. We'll see you in a couple of weeks and hangs up. And, dude, I was, I was heartbroken, you yeah. know. And, and I, I cried. I'll be honest. I cried. I thought I had done everything I possibly could to do that. And now I'm alone. And not only that, I have to face everybody that thinks I'm going and have to tell everybody why I'm not. So you have these moments throughout this. And in that two weeks as well, we're doing this running exercise. And it's, it's kind of fartlek running. So what, it's like 30 seconds of jog, 20 seconds stride, 10 seconds sprint. And uh, it's a normal preseason thing. Well, they put all the young players with Danny Pena, who's like the hardest dude of all time. Okay. Like he doesn't take shit from anybody. Like you don't make eye contact with this guy. He's one of those guys, man. <laughs> yeah. and, but I really, I, I love the way that he played. You could tell that he cared and all that stuff. But like when it comes to personal relationships, he just doesn't have time for young players in particular. And even the old guys, I think were intimidated by him. So we're running with him, and, and what do you do? You're, you're a young player. You're trying to prove yourself, and you want to kind of go. Like, I, you could, I already told you guys I'm fit, right? So I knew that I'd come in. I wanted to be fit. But how do you show that when you're running with Danny Pena? Because I don't want to show him up, per se. But I also want to prove that I'm ready to go and there's somebody I can count on. So I do the first lap, and he's running so slow. It's embarrassing how slow he's running because, you know, he's 34. 30, he didn't give a shit yeah. about this type of preseason running. He's just going to – whenever you tell him ready to play, he'll be ready to play. But at that point, I was pretty naive, 20-year-olds. 20 and uh, I said, you know what? I'm going for it. I'm just going to run as hard as I can. And, and he got all the younger players. He was 
talking trash to me and all the younger players are making fun of me and and like being a try hard and all this stuff and all the peer pressure that comes with that and i didn't i i had to prove myself man I, you can't uh yeah. you can't handcuff me you can't shackle me man like you know i want to i want to fly i'm a bird i want to fly you know so i had a really tough time but i was like this is what i'm out here to do and he pulled me danny Pena pulled me aside and tore me a new one and while he's tearing me a new one i started crying i'm crying in front of danny Pena, and he go and and i think then i'm like hey man you're on the team and i'm not like how do you expect me to make the team if i'm not trying to push myself and at that point he completely understood where i was coming from he never gave me a hard time ever again and and like would put his arm around me from that point forward anytime yeah. he saw me and i think he was actually really proud of the success i ended up achieving because of all the players that are on that team i was what maybe i'm the only one that played the world cup you know i mean so so that was it was very very cool to have kind of gone full circle but at that point now you're dealing with going into this a situation where the older guys don't really like you you're going into this thing where the coach is dicking you around and now you got to tell you it just was the, like a crazy two weeks where i was feeling really good about myself but then also not feeling and who had my back and who can i trust and does anybody even really want me out i mean you're going through so much this whole cycle of your identity and who i am do i really want it and ultimately it turned out to be the best thing i didn't make the team that year i went down to san diego and played like a league it's called but it was us usl championship ultimately and i got to play 30 games in six months and had I gone to MLS, I would have sat on the bench and watched Greg Vanny and Robin Frazier play, you know, and yeah. it was important for me to get those games and sleep on floors. I made $800 a month. I trained in the morning with a team. I trained by myself in the afternoon. I started training with a tennis ball to get my first touch even better. And I just kept pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing. And I still do that now, boys. And I don't know how to turn it off because that's how I'm wired. <laughs> and yes, it gets me a lot of stuff, but I also think sometimes your biggest strength can be a, a big weakness as well. No, respect. Um, anyway, that was a really long-winded story. If you're still listening to the podcast, I appreciate you. <laughs> <laughs> no, most definitely. I think it's a testament to who you are now. Like, all the things sure. that you went through through your soccer career, it definitely translates into the media because every time we see something going on, uh, you're involved or have your hands <laughs> on it in some way, shape, or form. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned the World Cup. Uh, can you talk about that real quick? Because, I mean, that's a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Not everyone is fortunate enough. You know, you mentioned yeah. big time pros that, you know, you played with or competed with. And, you know, you, you're probably one of the few that made it to that. that yeah, level. I mean, I, I I was I thought my time with the national team had come and gone. I had been, you know, MLS best 11 a couple years and still couldn't get that call in, you know, and I was like, man, does Bruce Serena not like me? Like what's happening? <laughs> and, and he just had his guys, you know, and guys that he already trusted. And I'm trying to break in on what Eddie Pope and Greg Berhalter and Jeff Agus, you know, guy, really established players. And uh, I just stopped seeing it like that. I, I thought, okay, if I'm ever going to get a call in, I just got to take this one step at a time and just try to beat the guy that's ahead of me. And I want to give a shout out to Nick Garcia, who played in the league for a long time. He was with me in Kansas City and he kept getting called in. And I never got called in. I'm like, okay, if I ever get called in, I just got to be better than Nick. So eventually I got called in. I was 27 when I got called in. It's pretty late for my first ever call up into a national team camp. And Nick got called in as well. And the only reason is because Danny Califf, who remember because he left to go UCLA, went to Maryland. Yeah. I got the chance at UCLA. It's because he went over to, it's a January camp. He went over to Europe during the January transfer window to go try to go over to Scandinavia or wherever he could go, Bundesliga. 
and try to get a gig. So that opened up a spot, and that's why I got called in. Man, I like I have to send like three thousand thank you letters to to Danny Kayla for for giving me <laughs> not these sure opportunities. Like that. No, Danny, probably not. Sure. Probably not. Gonna like that. But no, you, you're right. <laughs> He's probably kicking himself for giving me those opportunities. But uh, in that camp, I just kept it simple. It was a dream of mine to finally get in there. And what I thought actually, and I don't like when people dismiss the January camp. And they call it Camp Cupcake now and all this bullshit. And I don't have time for that because it's a huge opportunity to be around the coaching staff for three weeks with not a lot of pressure. You don't have – usually when you get called in, it's a FIFA window and it's qualifying. And when are you ever going to – if you're on the outside looking in, how are you ever going to have a chance to prove yourself? Or how is the coaching staff ever really going to get to know you if they don't see you over an extended period of time? So the January camps for me are incredibly valuable, especially for the fringe players who can end up helping you in important moments like I ended up doing. But I'd say that at that January camp, I kept it so simple. I just want to be better than Nick Garcia. If they look at Kansas City, I just want him to look at me as the player to call from Kansas City from a defensive perspective and not Nick. And I would purposely go into Nick's fitness groups. I would purposely try to do any possession with Nick. I just wanted to be competing and showing that I'm a better player than him in everything. And I, because I think I kept it so simple in my goal, I didn't get overwhelmed by the bigger moment. And, mm. and, and that really helped me in terms of like not getting too excited, not getting too stressed out. Just, just, I just want to be better than Nick. So every double day, better than Nick, better than Nick and, and run faster than Nick. And I would push myself. Nick is a master at the, 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 the beep test. And I, and I made sure that I, like Nick did, he quit and I went like two more lengths. So I'm like, I'm done. I just, I beat yeah. Nick. So there were all these little things. And that was, that parlayed, that three weeks, I parlayed to getting going with the team for the next first World Cup qualifier of that year. We were in Trinidad. Eddie Johnson was on fire at that time. He scored like six goals in six games. He scored a great one in Trinidad. I didn't make the 18-man roster, but I was there. I got to see how Eddie Pope and others prepare for an away qualifier. I was roommates with Casey Keller. And I started to get all this really valuable experience. And I think also I was being tested as to what kind of teammate I can be. So I got called into the Gold Cup that summer, and I knew that I wasn't going to be a starter. But it didn't bother me. I'm like, I just want to be on this team and prove that they can utilize me in any way. So the first game I started, my first cap, I was 28 at this point. And we went down 1-0 to Cuba, by the way. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is the worst first cap of all time. We had, <laughs> it was me and Clint Dempsey and I both had the first cap. And he ended up scoring Clint right before halftime. We ended up winning 3-4-1. or And then in the second game, I, we played two days later against Canada. And I, was, I made the 18. And Eddie Pope had to come off at halftime. I'm like, this is it. If I can prove that they can trust me in any situation, either as a starter or as a sub or in anything, I'm going to put myself in a really good spot because this is a tournament, just like a World Cup, that I can be ready. And so I was, dude, I was locked in. And I played really well in that second 45 minutes. We win 2-0. I was the only player that played in all six games in that Gold Cup, and we won it. And so that was a really pivotal moment for me. I played in some World Cup qualifiers, and I just stuck around. And... Only Marcelo Balboa, which is a weird kind of twist of this whole story. Oh, there was 30, 30, 30, 30 journalists at that point. Marcelo had retired. 30 journalists predicted the lineup for the World Cup and 2006 World Cup roster. And only Marcelo Balboa had me in there in the 23. Everybody else didn't think I was going to make it. And he, he, and he, when I made it, he's like, I knew because of all these other things. He saw what I saw. And he, he could understand why the coaches brought me. So... I ended up going, and sure enough, I didn't play the first game, but I came on as a sub in the second half against Italy. We were down a man. It was 10, 10 players versus nine. We held on for the 1-1 draw. I started against Ghana, and, and 
Bruce wrote me a really nice note, note say basically saying at the end of the tournament, I knew I could trust you. And and that is all that I, I That's the biggest compliment. I, uh that's that's it that gives yeah. me goosebumps just talking about it. But imagine a guy that walked on and and where I got to. And it was just because I was willing to work a little bit harder than everybody else. No, it's amazing to hear stories like that. You know, your story, you know, you hear stories like Wando, there's stories like Benny Fair. Crazy. Um, and there's countless other stories, just like if you really want it, you got to go get it and um, you got to find your Nick. You got to find your Nick Garcia, someone that's going to, you know, be that North Star for you to constantly compete against. I assume because you guys have interviewed so many that there's probably some some themes, some consistent themes that emerge in every story. Right? Oh, I for mean, sure. It, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's belief, it's yeah. confidence, and it's, it's not getting too down when things aren't going your way, I think is, is uh, one of those things too. And, and that is what separates because you guys have been around when you were the most talented player or if you were around the most talented player at the youth teams and they were always told how great they were for so long, the first time they get punched in the face, they don't know how to cope with that adversity. Mm -hmm. But if you know, you're like me who pretty much was told he wasn't good or not good enough for a long time, you just kind of accept that, all right, I'm maybe not going to be the best, but I know how to work through that adversity. I can cope with it better. And minimizing those downs, I think, is, is super important for longevity, for sure, or whatever you do. All right. You, like I said before, you're one of the top storytellers when it comes to – I know. I talk guy. a lot. I'm sorry I'm, like, dominating uh, no, no, this podcast. No, no, it's great. I like, I like hearing like, your guys' insights. Do you have, like, a favorite experience with the U.S. men's national team? Like, a, one story that you're allowed to share? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. That's a great question. I mean, I think that I would say from a team, like a collective perspective, being in the World Cup against Italy, where we lost the first game against Czech Republic 3-0, and that was after the 2002 World Cup where we got to the quarterfinals. Everybody's expecting us to take that next big step. We're pretty much in the group of death. And uh, Czech Republic came out and slapped us around, man. They were really, really good. One of the yeah. best performances I'd seen in yeah, person. I'm like, God damn. Honestly, me, Clint, and Josh Wolf were warming up. But there's only one more sub left. And I'm like, ah, I don't know if I want to play this one, man. These guys are really good. Not, I mean, not that I would turn down a World Cup appearance, but God damn it, these guys are good. And he put Wolfie in. And me and Clint were all kind of like, you know, oh, hopefully the next one will get in. But uh, and we did. We Both of us got in the, the Italy game. But after the Italy game, it felt like we had regained some of that, that – that trust, that trust and respect, um, not only not only of the public, because whatever, that's that's secondary, but of ourselves. Like we are a good team, and and Italy treated us like afterwards. They that that was like the most heroic performance. Their their players were gushing about how how well we played and and how we dealt with adversity, and it was really cool. Like that whole that whole lock. Like we had a chance in the last group game, mm -hmm. and, and uh, so the next five days were really cool, and there was a togetherness that didn't exist because there was so much pressure. We were like the fifth-ranked team or the third-ranked team in FIFA, whatever you think the FIFA rankings. We were number three, I think, going into that World Cup. So there's so much pressure on, on, on us, and we did, threw up kind of a lemon in that game, first game. We felt like we kind of redeemed ourselves in, in game number two, and so that, that was pretty cool. to And just to see how the fans responded to it, and it was an epic game. I mean, people still talk to me about it uh, now, which is, what, 16 years later, which is crazy to think about. But, um, yeah, it's probably that game in particular – uh, you know, there's other moments where, you know, you do some fun stuff that I can't say. Uh, but, uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, ultimately, I think from a from a collective perspective, that was that was pretty cool. And and then for me, that was my first World Cup game and to be able to hold my own. You know, my dad was there. He never doesn't like to fly. It was Father's Day. You know, you have these little yeah. little things. My youth coach was there as well, who, you know, had brought me along and really taught me all the important things that gave me that foundation. 
so there's a lot of cool things on an individual level and collectively as well as a group. Perfect. Um, all right. Uh, after uh, L, do you have any questions in regards to L's? Like, I don't know if I want to ask. It's gonna be like a 20 minute answer. No, no, no. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm interested to get into the next segment. Um, you know, talking about your your career off the field. You know, you have a pretty successful media career. You know, including CBS, YouTube, Twitch. Um, you've been able to kind of carve your own niche and build your own platform, as well as you know, work with some of the major platforms as well. Tell us how you got into content creation. It started with me as a player, to be honest. I had an opportunity when I was on loan. I went to Lech Poznan in Poland a couple years into my career, which I actually think I wish MLS would let more players go on loan, I think, to kind of get out of your comfort zone. And, and uh, it kind of I think it's that famous Mike Tyson quote, you know, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. And, and yep. That's what I went when I went to Poznan. They don't like they don't think Americans can play. You're also when you're there, you're taking away a spot. This is from your own teammates, a spot from one of their friends. Uh, then the opponents don't think you can play. I got spit on. I got punched in the face and and the lack of respect. It's a sink or swim time. And so I think I wish MLS would, would allow that to happen because uh, a little bit more often because I think it was really valuable for me. But when I was there. That's when they had archaic internet. You had to go to the internet cafe and it'd be like the dial up and it'd take like 20 minutes to send one email. And by the end of it, I just wrote, I was there for four months and I wrote this scathing email about how ass backwards Poland is and how they're still stuck <laughs> in the stone age. And I just ripped the whole thing and it was hilarious. And I sent it to my agent and a couple of people that worked at the, the agency at the time and, and my family, like I just tagged everybody. It's a group email and they loved it. It was like a thousand words of just me going off and they just pitched that to Sports Illustrated. So I ended up writing a column. At that time, it was me and Garth Lagerway, who's now a very successful GM for the Sounders and Real Salt Lake before that, who played in the career. But he, when he was playing, he wrote for Sports Illustrated. So it was me and him. And then I transitioned to ESPN. But I think what was really valuable for me at that time was I was writing kind of like on the inside looking out, right? So I'm mm -hmm. giving you this inside perspective and trying to be fun and having a good time. And like I'd interview my teammates and like, are you jealous of me in the shower kind of thing? And all of them would say no. And I'm like, that's messed <laughs> up, man. You know, like it's genetics. What am I supposed to do? So, so uh, super funny. We don't have to go too far down that rabbit hole, but, but that would be like silly things like that. And it was, it was fun. I had a blast, but I think what you learn is when you're, when you're doing that and that led to a radio show when I was with Kansas city, when you do a radio show, I was doing it live. I'd have to face the fans. And if we lost, they want to be okay. So, so you say you're sitting there, you're on an Island, you're doing this thing and people are like, well, why are we losing? And you have uh, to sit there and figure out a way to craft your narrative, to craft your communication without throwing anybody under the bus, but also being thoughtful about giving a response that people can sink their teeth into. So when you think about me writing columns, right, and then me doing these, these, these radio shows, I started to craft a voice. So I learned how to speak. I learned about what I wanted to say and how I wanted to say it. And that was incredibly important for me and made the transition easier from playing to media. And so that helped me out a ton. Again, right? If you want to get good at anything, you have to put the time in. You have to can't skip any steps. And the same thing applied here. It just was more fortuitous. I knew I had the personality to probably do some media stuff. I didn't know how far it was going to go. And at this point, there was no YouTube to imagine or Twitch or, or anything like that. Really, the only thing you could do is wear a suit, sit on a couch, and analyze the game. Those were kind of the options afterwards or continue to write a column. But even though I don't think even people knew what it was going to turn into. And so when I had the opportunity to get into media and I retired, I was in L.A. with Chivas USA. Rest in peace to that club. Well, what's just now LAFC, let's be honest. And, and, and so I went into the studio 
And I started doing stuff with Christopher Sullivan and Eric Winalda. It was the MLS game of the week. And I was like, cool, man, I'm going to with Fox, going to do this some stuff. And I was so new and green that I'm there with, and I'm sure Christopher Sullivan and Eric saw me as a bit of a threat, right? The young guy coming up, uh, he's got some personality, kind of funny. Uh, you know, we don't want to make sure we give this guy, like help this guy. And so I don't, I don't blame them for this, but we did a rehearsal and Eric asked me a great question and I finally had a good answer. I thought a good 30 second answer, nice and short and sharp, but gave you some good info. So I said, Eric, ask me that same question before we go on air, right? You can already know where this is going. <laughs> yeah. So he goes, he starts, he, he goes, he does the whole intro and he goes, all right, Jimmy, you know, blah, 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 blah. And asks a completely different question. <laughs> but because I'm so new, I, I, I already knew what I wanted to say. So I just said what I had said before. And he goes, he, this, oh, no joke. He goes, that's not what I asked. Christopher? <laughs> and he oh, completely man. threw me under the bus on live television, <laughs> dude. Just because I know Eric. Oh, my goodness. That's hilarious. Listen, listen. I'm friends with Eric. And, yeah. and, and I, actually, I actually, in some ways, at, the, at that time, I was pissed at him. But, <laughs> but now looking back, I appreciated that because – I then knew I'm now entering into a different competitive space yeah. and that nobody's going to hand this to me again. And I have to get better at my craft, but this is actually the direction I want to go in. And so when that came to an end and I was still that Fox kind of the season ended, Fox was going to offer me some stuff. It wasn't going to be necessarily full time, but YouTube put a hundred million dollars into a hundred channels. Madonna had a channel. Jay-Z had a channel and they were going to give a soccer channel to, uh, to ultimately turn into MLS. And they were going to do another soccer channel that was London-based. And, and MLS reached out to me and said, hey, we think you'd be perfect for this. And I said to my wife, let's just go to New York. Let's just do it for a year and see what happens. But I know that I'll be in front of the camera for two or three hours a day. Whereas with Fox, I might have like two or three times a week. you know. Yeah. And, and so leaning back on what I did to grow as a player, right, when I go up against the wall, I knew I needed reps. I knew I needed to be in front of the camera and work through it and suck at the start, but then I'll get there eventually. And I know I'll get there because I've done it before in a previous career. And so that's what I did. So we took the, took the leap that year turned into five years. And from there, I just, I, I got to know a lot of people. I got better at my craft and that's led into all these opportunities and I'm still got my surfboard out. I'm riding this wave and just waiting for the wave to crash, but you know what? I'm having a hell of a time while I'm here uh, surfing. Most yeah, for sure. Um, so what, what, what have been some of your favorite moments as a content creator or as a, you know, on air personality, like favorite interview the, or something like that? Yeah. So, so, you know, getting to interview, you know, Will Ferrell was cool and, and uh, I had that opportunity and I got, uh, when I went to Budweiser hotel and when I talked about the Rihanna story, so hanging with Rihanna, Diplo was there. I got to hang with Diplo, uh, Will Ferrell and Ashton Kutcher. And you get to see like, this is the byproduct of hard work. Like, if you mm -hmm. put yourself in good spots, I get to do this. And, and mm -hmm. I never take that for granted, ever, ever, ever. So, so I'll get to that 2014 World Cup trip in a second. But there was a trip that we, when we first started Kick TV, we were all studio-based on green screen. And I, I don't, I'm never going to show you a link of my first one. I was so like a wooden <laughs> – hi, I'm Jimmy Con. Like, I couldn't even say my name with any energy. Oh. I, I, if you're watching Kick TV. It was the worst. It was the worst. But it also shows growth and how much I've grown. Yeah. But after about five or six months – the Euros started. The Euros were in Poland and Ukraine. And we had to push so hard. Like, let us get out of the studio. Let us go do, like, on-the-road stuff. Let us go show you what it looks like to be a fan at one of these events. And they said, okay, we'll give you budget for three of you, of a shooter, a producer, a shooter, editor, and, and then you. And we'll let you go just for the group stages. We're like, fine, we're in. So we go, 
And dude, like for the longest time, it was, it was, it was, it was an awakening for me because now we could see what, what this channel was capable of. We could go out there and we could go interview fans from Croatia. And I did that. And I, you know, they have the checkerboard Jersey or whatever. So mm -hmm. I painted my face on the checkerboard, had the Jersey and I'm getting absolutely hammered with alcohol and with Croatian fans. And not that that's something I, I, I'm necessarily proud of that's on camera, but there was something I, I, it got to release something in me because for the longest time I had to be super rigid in my preparation as a professional athlete. And I couldn't do some of these things. I couldn't enjoy the game on this side. I couldn't just go mm -hmm. be a fan. And this game, this tournament, I got to just go be a fan and, and I got to just relax and have fun and capture all that fun and enthusiasm and passion for the game in a way that I couldn't really show it as a professional athlete. So that was really pivotal for me in terms of our transition. And when we came back, everybody loved it. Now, it didn't crush yeah. it in the views, mm -hmm. but sometimes it's not about the number of views. It's the, about the number of types of people that are watching it, the people that actually control the creative of different out. So agencies saw it. We saw Adidas loved it and wanted to do some branded stuff with us. Like you started like the right people saw it. And that's important too. So let's fast forward two years later, we're in, we're in Brazil and now we're using what we did in Ukraine and Poland as a springboard that's bigger. Like we're now we're like, Hey, we did this, but imagine if our budget was, you know, $15,000 more, we could do this, this, and this. So we laid out a whole bunch of stuff, dude. I went swimming in the Amazon. I got, I interviewed David Beckham, uh, you know, then it turned into that, that opportunity with, with Will Ferrell and, and everybody else at the Bud Hotel. And, and I'm doing all these things. I went to eight games. I went to the World Cup final. I went to, uh, I, I went to two U.S. games, you know, three, all the group, group stage games for the U.S. Like, I got to be part of the U.S. fan section, you know, uh, uh, American Outlaws. And it was just an incredible thing. And you just go play soccer on the beach, and you see Arsene Wenger walking by. Like, what? This is just crazy. So all these these crazy opportunities and again when i look back on it it's just because i wanted to put a little bit more work into it than other people and i just tried to get better at my craft every single day as opposed to settling for okay i made it. i never ever once thought even when i was a player that i made it uh now there are moments where i try to enjoy it right i don't want to be so much where i'm like this is amazing i try to stay in the moment but but also i never let it well i try not to let it get to my head maybe i'm sure there's people going ah you're you're egotistical bastard you're lying but there are probably moments where I was enjoying it too much, but I never took it for granted. And I think that's important. Yeah, for sure. And you kind of, um, so that's a pretty good segue into like what advice you would give other content creators who are looking to kind of, you know, join your space. Like, you know, us, for example, you know, we're fairly new to it. Two Cents FC show is about two years, two years old. Mm -hmm. So, you know, continuing to grind it out and stuff like that. But, you know, everybody sees people who are at the end product, you know, they see, right. And they see you with your YouTube channel, 250,000 subscribers, you know, 100,000 followers on Twitter. Like everybody sees the end product, but they don't see the work that goes into getting there or even how long it takes to get there. Um, so what advice would you have for some content creators who are looking to, you know, kind of join the soccer space and, you know, do some of the things that you've had the, the pleasure of doing? I would say try to identify where you think there's a void. And if you can sense that there's a void in a certain space, for us, when Kick TV got started, there was no proper YouTube soccer channel, especially for Americans. And the way, the way that we saw it was we wanted to make MLS bigger. We wanted MLS to be treated with the same respect. Now, we were being housed by MLS, so there was some you know, in incentive there to make sure that we're <laughs> treating respect to our employers. But even they were said, hey, just do, you know, you're, you're supposed to talk about the global game. 
And so what mm-hmm. we said was, why don't we talk about all the top stories that everybody's talking about, but then also bring an MLS story into it and treat it with the same respect. Because what you see is all of a sudden MLS gets brought up or over the years, and it's, and it's always like a joke. Uh, look at the football lines, or they play on stupid turf, or look how bad this defender is. And so there's also another series I did called Coach Jimmy, where, where and actually it started with, it started with a kick TV bit where there was a goal. I took the MLS goal of the year. It was Pat Ayani, who scored an absolute, like, side volley for the Sounders from, like, 18 yards. It was a ridiculous goal. And I said, look, imagine if Robin Van Persie had done this. Everybody in the world will be talking about it. But it, it happens here in MLS. And, it, oh, the goalkeepers suck, man. Oh, the defenders are terrible. Yeah. Like, now, how about you just respect a good goal? And so that sparked a lot of, a lot of, Euro snobs coming into the comments going, oh, shut up, Jimmy. You don't know what you're talking about. It, listen, there's a lot of truth to what I'm saying. And they knew it. That's why. And all of a sudden, that video like, did five times the amount of views that, that normally because I went directly at what's happening. And, and I've, we found a void where can we create a global conversation and bring – and so we started to not only bring MLS into it, but the Mexican League, uh, the J League, the A League in Australia, the, you know, the Japanese League, and, and – treated everybody with respect everybody's out there trying to play and play well and there's some talented players all over the place and so it's not we tried to get away from we we respected what was happening in europe but also tried to bring other things into it and at that point i thought we were doing the the job and one of my most successful videos or at least one of the most engagements we had was hey if you if we think you should support an mls team because it's awesome who do you support in real life if you support liverpool well let's find let's find a team that's like liverpool in MLS. And at that point, Liverpool wasn't winning Champions League trophies or the league, right? So we tried mm-hmm. to find a team that was like a nearly team or, you know, like the New England Revolution. Always so close, but never could get to the finish line, you know? So, and then you start to tie these things together and start to treat things with respect. So we filled that void. And I thought we did it pretty successfully. So what void is out there? Now, obviously, there's a lot more competition. There's a lot of voices. There's a lot of kick TVs and, and Copa 90s out there that are doing a lot of the same things. But what's going to make you different and i think if you can kind of figure out what that is it's important now i also say when i got let go from kick tv and that whole thing ended i started from scratch on my youtube channel and i knew i was going to do a lot of the similar things but i had to edit myself something i had never done before but editing gives you the power to tell the story in a different way so that's another thing you can add your personality to and people are drawn to that some good editing some funny things that you throw in there you could throw a meme in there right just to kind of change it up from other things that you're seeing so there was a lot of different editing tricks that you could do. And so I went running with a top YouTuber, Casey Neistat, who's like one of the best documentarians on YouTube, bar none. And so we went running one day in New York. He's a friend. And, and he said, listen, you're not going to find your voice for about 150 or 200 videos. But you have to keep putting it out there. And he was right. Around like 175, I was like, I've, I've, I found my sweet spot. I found my groove. I found what I wanted to say and how I wanted to say it and how I wanted to edit it and that type of stuff. And that led to opportunities where, you know, if I did man on the street stuff, being sports, I had a two year thing with being sports where I was doing man on the street stuff for them, which was good shoulder programming for their in-studio stuff. We had, um, I started hosting tournaments for EA sports and their FIFA global tournaments, which was really cool, but that was a different skill set, right? Hosting big things and, and kind of using my personality. So all of a sudden, because I was visible and putting myself out there, you start to be put on radars that you wouldn't be done other way. So if you can find a void, you can start putting out consistent content, but don't worry about the views. Don't worry about any of that stuff. Just try to get better at your craft. And if you're passionate about what you're doing, 
then hopefully, and I'm, I'm an example of it, and it seems like you guys are as well, that's going to lead to other opportunities that maybe you weren't expecting, but you, you had positioned yourself to be ready for it if they came. Nah, I needed that one. That, that one was for me. I love it. Sure. <laughs> I'm calling it now. 2026 U.S. World Cup Tour. Uh, Jimmy Conrad, Two Cents FC collab, dude, collab campaign. Dude, dude, that would be amazing. You know what? We should do it before then. Because yeah. because uh, that one's like we're talking off off, uh, yeah. off We'll, we'll talk offline for that one. <laughs> no, no, but seriously, you got to prove concept. So I'll give yeah. you an example. I, I do When I travel, I do pickup games, right? And I do pickup yeah. games. I invite mm. people to come out and I have some fun. And, and the turnouts are... I'm always impressed by how many people come out, but you can sense that there's a sense that people want that, that, that sense of community and to be a part of something bigger than themselves. So I did a pickup game tour where I went from Seattle to Portland to San Francisco to San Diego to LA. And we tied it around like watch parties. So like, let's watch a World Cup final together and then we'll go play. So we did that and um, I proved the concept. And then AT&T said, hey, we want you to do the same thing for us ahead of the MLS Cup playoffs. So I went to Boston. I went to Dallas and I went to New York and AT&T funded the whole thing. And all the money that I spent on my, on my own personal tour, I got double from AT&T. So I made my money back, but it's important to prove the concept. So we should probably plan something first. And then we can say, Hey, look what we did. This is how it can look like. And then what you do is once you prove the concept, you can say, Hey, AT&T or whatever brand, how do we incorporate what you bring? What's your personality into this content? And then we can kind of shape it together seeing what they have and seeing what we have and then finding that, that happy medium. Uh, yeah, for definitely. sure. Yeah. You just, you just validated a, a lot. Man of like, the people. We, I, I aim yeah. to please. I aim to please. Yeah. You just validated a lot. We've been doing like a lot of proofs of concepts for like show ideas and stuff yeah. like that. Um, you have to do it. Yeah. Stay on the grind. Yeah. It's All one right, thing to um, do it and show it on paper. You have an idea, but if you're actually out there and you're showing it, even my coach Jimmy's, which are just me kind of doing, you know, funny analysis on plays, which is ultimately me basically saying, honestly, the crux of Coach Jimmy's are me going, look how bad these defenders are in Europe. Stop making fun of MLS because these guys are trash too. Like that's pretty much the underlying theme of all my Coach Jimmy's. And, and uh, AT&T again, we're like, we love the Coach Jimmy's and, or the ad agencies actually, right? If you can get right. on the radar of the ad agencies that are actually controlling the budget for these big brands, mm-hmm. it changes everything. So also I've tried to position myself where I can be good at a couple different things. I can be good at hosting. I can be good at being a content creator and, and generating my own ideas. And also I try to come in and say, hey, you're not just hiring me to be talent. I can also be an ideator, right? I can, and then I can help you execute. I have my own guys that I can help kind of add those little layers of, of internet, as I call it. Like how, how can we add internet to this to make it even funnier, make it better? And, right. and then, uh, you know, you, then as you start to build trust with these, not only the brands, but with the ad agencies, they start to think about you for whole different type of campaigns. And all of a sudden, like I hosted something, oh, what was it? I hosted something that had nothing to do. Oh, I went to Sundance Film Festival and I, I, I did three days there where I was hosting for YouTube live and talking to documentarians that were there making top documentaries for, for movies. It had nothing to do with soccer, but because they knew I had the hosting capabilities, I get, I, it's crazy, right? So, yeah. so it's just that visibility is really important to just put yourself out there and, and showcase what you're all about. So don't, don't shy away from your personality. You should lean in and own your personality. Straight up, straight up. Hey, if you're listening, this is some game, some Major free game, game right here. <laughs> all right, so let's get into some quick rapid fire stuff. I know Shoot, we're coming up to time. Um, so what was one interesting fact about yourself that most people wouldn't know? Well, I'm an Aquarius. I like long walks on the beach. <laughs> and I uh, bowled five Chill, strikes man. in a row once. No, no, no. That's uh, – uh, that's I'm a vegetarian now. I guess that might be somewhat interesting. 
and um, I'm like 10 pounds under my plane weight, which I kind of miss my plane weight because I was a lot stronger and faster when I'm going to play pickup. But how's, uh, your, how's your energy? How's your energy though? Yeah, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. I have to supplement my protein in different ways with uh, pea protein, and there's other ways to do it: tofu and beans and all that type of stuff. But uh, I don't have the same power that I once did. I'm not going to try to BS you, Omobi. But um, God, interesting. I I uh, I think that's. I feel like I'm kind of a open book, so a lot of my interesting stuff's already out there. But um, yeah, I'm going to keep it short. It's rapid fire. <laughs> keep it okay. going. All right. So um, during your playing days, or even you know before a game as a coach, like what's on your pre-match playlist? Ooh, good one. So when I was younger, I went hard punk rock, you know, minor threat for all you old punk rock fans out there would be one of them. But then as I got a little bit older, I, I felt like I, my energy's off the charts. I need to actually slow it down. So I started doing yoga before big games, national team and all that type of stuff. And I helped just help. I think the breathing is really what helped. Yeah. And obviously getting some, getting some blood flow in certain areas. My hips are always a little tight. So that helped. And so I needed to have music that matched that. I wasn't listening to like elevator music or anything, but you know, I would drop more into like the XX or, or um, stuff that was a little bit more mellow. Um, that XX probably what jumps out at me, but, um, but then the younger guys that were, when I got older, the younger guys came in and pretty much took, took over. Radio. So I didn't really take have control the ox. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't like my old, my, my old school stuff. So it's fine. Okay. Um, so you're always working, always on the grind. Um, what's your favorite off work activity? I like to play tennis now. I, I found a friend that's better than me. And I'll be honest, I throw my racket a lot. I'm a baby. I'm a John McEnroe out there. And it's because, <laughs> listen, you guys know, like if you play for a long time, you just think you're, you just think you should be good at everything. That's part of the hero complex. Not only being a professional athlete, but also uh, just being a man. Like a man thinks they can do anything, right? So I, I, that's been very humbling for me. So I, I've been appreciated. I guess I've appreciated the opportunity to try to get better at something else, you know, to try to actually get better. Because for a long, I, when I'm, I'm an athlete playing tennis, I'm not, I'm not playing the game. Right. So I have to learn like the nuance and subtleties of the game of like when to hit like a, like a slice to the, somebody's back. Like, I don't know how to do any of that stuff. I'm not even thinking about like theory of how to, how to win tennis points. So my buddy just beats me all the time, even though like I can track every ball down, I can hit pretty good shots, but he'll hit that one to my backhand that's got a slice and I hit it into the net and I lose everything. It pisses me off, guys. But so, so tennis is something I'm in right now, non-sport related. Uh, yeah, I mean, ultimately, I just love I love to coach. So I'm doing a lot of coaching right now, whether it's a U10 rec team for my youngest daughter or assisting my my oldest who's in high school right now. That makes me feel old. Um, <laughs> I'm like, a, I try to be a, the best volunteer dad of all time. And so, so a lot of that's going, I'm getting my A license as well for, for U.S. soccer. So I'm trying to position myself once again, that when I'm ready to transition into potentially full-time coaching, I'm ready to go. Yeah, for sure. For sure. All right. So what is your, what is, or was your favorite away city? Ooh, <laughs> there's a, there's a nice little laugh there. Cause there's a lot of different stories you can, you can lean into. <laughs> Uh, I'd always really enjoyed New York. I remember going to New York City, and when you played against the Red Bulls, you kind of stay in New Jersey, which sucked because yeah. they were playing in New Jersey. But I remember a night with Clint Mathis, who was a friend of mine. He's like, let's go. And so, you know, he he was making big money. I was probably like on 30 grand or something. And, and uh, you know, he put, took me out. We went to a nice place. He knows everybody, you know, getting good drinks. And, and I wasn't drinking too much, but I was watching Clint Mathis be the legend that is Clint Mathis. And he's like, hey, man, uh, I can't drive. Why don't you drive back? So 
it was 2 a.m. We're in New York City in Manhattan, and I'm driving his brand new X5. Like X5s were, the you know, I still, yeah, it was an awesome car at the time. And like, oh my god, I was like this is a big timer. Clint Mathis, national teamer, scored in the World Cup. Like he's taking me out. I get to drive his X5 through Manhattan. Like that was probably one of the coolest nights I had ever had because not only was I kind of around somebody that I looked up to, but uh, just all these little things. I got a little taste of what it must be to be a, a really good player. <laughs> at that point, <laughs> I wasn't that good at that time, but uh, that was a really special night for me. All right, dope. All right, and so we touched on this earlier in the show about you know SoCal versus the world, or however you want to put it. Who was on your LA, LA five? I'll, I'll, I'll leave. I'll leave it to to LA, LA, LA? LA proper. Well, LA still covers a lot. <laughs> yeah. LA five aside, um, who's on your five aside? AT and T pickup tour. Who you who you who you picking for your LA squad? Well, I Landon Lamb Donovan will be in there as an LA kid. I think if you go on five aside, you need an athletic goalkeeper. So with all due respect to Matt Reese and Kevin Hartman, who I played with at UCLA, I'm going to go with another UCLA player, Nick Ramondo. So Ramondo, he could be on the field too. He could. That's the thing, right? You want a you want a you want a goalkeeper that can play with their feet a little bit. Now Reese has got incredible feet. Uh, Hardy, not so much. But I play with all three of those guys at, at UCLA, which just really speaks to the quality. But um, I'll go with Rimando because uh, because in a five aside, you know, you want ah, Reese would be a good shout too. Reese would be mad if he ever hears this. So so one of those two. Uh, Landon, me. Um, I'm trying to think of a holding midfielder. Steve Chirundolo for sure, but he's a San Diego kid. I don't know if he counts, but he's Southern California. Uh, Kobe Jones would be in there somewhere. I think him and Landon would uh, really make some of the magic happen. And I'm thinking who else? I mean, Winalda's another choice. He's a bit of a bastard, as I've already discussed. Uh, knows how to score, though. He's got a lot of goals yeah. for the national team. You got Landon, Kobe, me, and Eric. You know, I think we need a holding midfielder, though. That's the hard part. I, can I can I take Toronto? San Diego's pretty close. Is that no? Got to go LA. Are we, are we are we allowing that? DMV uh, gets DC, Maryland, and Virginia. So you know, can we can we allow San Diego? That's only a two hour drive. I mean, we didn't give uh, yeah, we didn't give Romaine, or no, right, we didn't give right, uh, we didn't give LA. Edward. We didn't give um, yeah. Earl. Yeah, LA. So yeah. he had to stick to San Diego. So you got to yeah, stick yeah, to LA. You got you got to stay LA. Now, there's a lot of young young players coming from LA that I know that I'm missing. I'm kind of speaking from my my generation. But yeah, okay, fine. I'll go. I'll go old school. I'll go. Uh, you know what? I'll leave. I'll leave Eric out because he was mean to me that one time. I'll go. Kobe <laughs> Jones, Landon Donovan, Marcelo Balboa, who I looked up to, and me, and then uh, Rimando or Matt Reese in goal. Yeah. Okay. That's, right. that's a pretty sick team. A lot of experience there. Yeah. All right. Nice. Nice. All right. So, real quick. Um, let's get into one of our favorite segments of the show, trending topics. Um, this is kind of a rapid fire segment where I'll read off a news headline and our guest, Jimmy, as well as, um, Amobi will give their opinions on those headlines using the soccer card system. Um, so, you know, if you agree with it, it's no card. If you are indifferent, you can go either way. It'd be yellow card. If you disagree, um, Mm -hmm, red mm -hmm. card, obviously. And then you have a quick explanation of why you gave that card, right? You got it. So. We have one this week. Um, Word on the street, Chris Mueller is returning to Chicago. Chris Mueller, formerly of Orlando City, is returning to Chicago um, after a short stay at Hibs or Hibernian, if if you're proper. Um, So what card are we giving this kind of move to Europe and then jump back so quickly? Um, I'll let you go first, Jim. I'll say no card on this one. I think that Chris Mueller 
Uh, how old is he? He was he's like on his late twenties, right? He's like twenty seven, I think. Yeah, so I think he got a taste, and I, I don't have any issue with it. I actually think it's a pretty good signing. I think what you learn to have success in MLS, it's helpful to have players that know how to have success in the league, and he's a known quantity. So I guess maybe from Chicago standpoint, it's a no card. Maybe from Mueller's standpoint, I could see it being a yellow because because you why why did he leave? Now there's probably a lot of different variables, but uh, mm -hmm. you know we always want to see our younger. Or any of our Americans go out there and continue to push. I mean, Christian Ramirez is in Scotland and is close to the top of the scoring charts. So that's what I like to see. And you want to see him kind of springboard from there. But uh, I like it from Chicago standpoint. Yeah, no card on Chicago standpoint, bringing a hometown kid home. Uh, definitely yellow card from Chris Mueller standpoint. Uh, obviously, you got to, if you have the chance to go to Europe, if you have that itch, you got to scratch it. But to come back so soon is like, mm. all right, why do you not want to stick it out? Or is Chicago offering you something you can't refuse? I mean, at yeah, the end of the day, right. you know, money talks. Your career only lasts so long, so you, you got to squeeze the juice. Uh, yeah, so that's my that's my take on it. Yeah, we're on the same page. I agree yeah. with that. All right, cool. All right, so that's it for training topics. We got one more question before we wrap things up. You know, CONCACAF uh, finals this week, Seattle versus Pumas. What's your predictions? Jimmy, I, go I, I got Seattle winning this one by a goal. Uh, I think that there's so much at stake to have an MLS team. If they win the CONCACAF Champions League, they go to the FIFA Club World Cup to finally play a Chelsea or Real Madrid in a, comp a meaningful competition instead of a meaningless friendly over the summer, I think is super important for the league and the perception of the league. And Seattle have it all there for them. They fought back from a 2-0 the deficit in leg one to get to two two referee was a little sketchy but it's CONCACAF so you got to take that into consideration 60,000 right. people you know at home Marshawn Lynch in the crowd driving you know getting everybody crazy his his stuff's been are you going to be in the crowd I wish I was going to be there um I'm reluctantly passing on the opportunity due to okay. some some stuff here but oh it's gonna be a great game and I think Seattle yeah. I think Pumas who finished 11th by the way in domestic in, in Liga MA Keys but it's one of those teams that, that turn up when it's time in, in inter international competition. And we saw them come back from a 3-0 deficit against the Rebs to, to get past them. And they beat Cruz Azul in the last round. I'm trying to give Puma some love here. Uh, Deneno up top is sick. He scored four goals in his last two games, scored two more this past weekend after scoring two against the Sounders in leg one. I, I think the Sounders will win by a goal, but it's it's going to be a little bit tighter. And, and if, if Puma score first, we got ourselves a dicey-ass game. But uh, But I like the Sounders. That's a good, that's a good, yeah. Oh my goodness. If any team could be a representative of MLS to like win CONCACAF, you'd want it to be Seattle. Agreed. I just think, I don't know, like, I'm scared. No, we to... can't trip up the fin. No, I don't like, don't take, I don't want these <laughs> negative vibes out in the Because universe. it's like, it's all, no, it's all, back. you know, it's, it it's all there, it's all there for us. And that's when we get let down the most, at least with the other squads, you know, when LASC and Toronto, you're like, these are good ass, you know, League MX teams. Pumas is, you know, good, but not great. Um, but yeah, the chance to play either Real Madrid, Man City, or Liverpool. I mean, let me not rule yeah, out yeah, yeah. Real. I mean, you can't. You know, if I'm the owner of Seattle, I'm just like, yo, whatever you all need, we got a briefcase full of cash at halftime. Get this win. I don't care what y'all do for the rest of the season. Um, yeah, it has, so to, ha it has to happen. It has it's to. Gonna, happen. It's gonna be a fun one. It's gonna be a fun one. I'm nervous though, like you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Jimmy, thank you so much. Uh, I know we didn't get a chance to talk about it, but you do have aspirations of coaching. Can you talk about, you know, your work with S SF Glens real quick? Yeah. So, so yeah, I, I helped coach the SF Glens, USL league two. I'm 
taking a step back from full head coaching duties because of some family and work responsibilities. And the season is weird for USL League 2. It kind of oh. really kicks in from May to beginning of July. And so we have Gabe Salcedo who's going to be the head coach. I'll be kind of assisting him and be the technical director this year. But it's been cool to see the, the, the game from this standpoint. Because I saw it from MLS. I saw it from the national team kind of up, up top looking down. Now I get to do it from looking down and go looking up, which, is, uh, which has been really informative for me and helps, it helps me to understand kind of where the game's evolving into and where I think I can best fit in. But uh, it's been incredible to try to give back to the next generation and try to help help them become 10 times the player I ever was. That's, that's the dream for me. If I really step into the coaching stuff. For sure. No, that's, that's what it's all about. I'm sure it's crazy to see like the talent across the board, you know, from when you grew up. Some, some of our young players coach, are, so. yeah. I mean, they're being recruited by Atletico Madrid. We have a, we have a 13 year old that wants to be signed by Nice in our Academy. Um, you know, the quakes are all over our young players cause we're in their region. We have a good relationship with them, but, yeah, there's some, there's some incredible talent, and we have a couple in our Even pipeline more. that, yeah, well, it's hard, man, it's hard, <laughs> but we have we have some players that are v- very very good, and and uh, I mean that's a credit to the scouting, the coaching staff, and the the whole the whole organization who aren't just looking for the kids that can play or excuse me pay, yeah. but are also looking for the kids that can't, and and making sure that we we get into underserved areas and make everybody gets an opportunity, and that we try yeah. to make it as equitable as possible. Where can people find you if they want to connect with you as we, you know, as we let you go? Thank you so yeah, much. Yeah, if you time. if you want to, you want a little more taste of this, you get a little of my special <laughs> sauce uh, at Jimmy Conrad on Twitter, Instagram, the Jimmy Conrad on YouTube. You can just type my name into YouTube. Though I haven't posted in a while. I've been just finished a one year deal with Twitch, so I'm on Twitch, the or Jimmy Conrad on Twitch, and then I'm on CBS Sports stuff, uh, specifically CBS Sports HQ. I have a new podcast with Charlie Davies and Heath Pierce called In Soccer We Trust. You can find that on any podcast platform or on YouTube as well. We've had a lot of great guests uh, on so far, and uh, it's been a lot of fun. Love that. I didn't know about the new podcast. Yeah, yeah, it's fun. Yeah, it's fun. Got to tap into that for sure. Well, ladies and gentlemen, a wonderful episode full of gems. Thank you so much, Jimmy, for your time. That's our show for this week. Subscribe, rate, and review. It helps us get discovered. Follow us on the socials at Two Cents FC Show. Check out our merch. As you can see, L is rocking the hat, and he's rocking the shirt at two sports.shop and tweet us your comments on the show or any topics you want me or L to discuss the only show where you're getting unfiltered thoughts and opinions on a weekly basis appreciate y'all for tuning in and we'll see you guys very very soon peace out Jimmy Legend.